0: some times in the Bible from beginning down 290 sometimes angels are mentioned but the thing is lots of us we don't get to see them, do we lots of times we read the stories and when bad things happen and we get excited and maybe our world is spun out of control where God are the angels there to help me but we don't see them a lot of times and so it's hard to believe in things we don't see is that true sometimes that honest to say I had an accident where a semi truck fell on top of me and crushed my body literally in half right across the middle and God sent two angels just like it says in this verse right here that we just got done reading that he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. So the accident happened in November of 2006. It was actually November 16, 2006. I owned a business where I did on-site diesel repair. I had a service truck that had all of my tools in it, and so uh, there's diesel engines all over that can't come to a garage. Somebody has to go on site to fix them. So that's what it was for me. I would work on a diesel generator, maybe at the at a hospital, or a uh, diesel pump that pumped water on a on. Cranberry marshes, there's a lot of those by us. Diesel equipment that runs logging on logging cranes, stuff like that. So I was called in, I specialized in just engine overhaul and repair. That's what I did. And so it was uh, November 16th, I was working on a Peterbilt logging truck. So this is as big of a semi-truck as you're going to see anywhere. Uh, This truck itself, empty, just empty. The front two tires, the weight on the front two tires was five to six tons. So 10 to 12,000 pounds of weight on the two front tires. So I've been called to, it had a coolant leak. It was leaking um, uh, antifreeze. And so I had to take the engine apart. I took it apart on Tuesday. I worked with a mechanic from this logging company. It was an hour from my home. So that morning I got up and left my house at 6 a.m., drove, got to the job site at 7 a.m., started working, putting it back together that Thursday. We got to the, basically to the point that the engine was back together. The engine is back together enough that we can run it. But the whole truck wasn't back together. But the engine, the part that I was called in to do, that part's back together. And so in order to test my repair to see if I'd fixed it or not, we started the engine. So now the engine is running 15 or 20 minutes. If you could picture a big uh, rectangular implement garage, much like the shape of this church, and that big Peter Belt is backed up all the way in the back. My service truck is backed up to it. And my service truck is nothing more than a big rolling toolbox. So... I'm wiping my tools off, putting them away, and I am minutes from walking out the door when the other mechanic, the mechanic who worked at this facility, came up and tapped me on the shoulder and said, before you go, would you look at one more thing? And I remember thinking, I, I looked at the clock and it was 6.10, and I knew I had an hour drive home, and I was just thinking, I just wanted to go home and eat um, you know there's it was the thursday before rifle hunting and so deer rifle deer hunting is a big thing where i live and i was I, mean, I still do a lot of deer hunting rifle hunting and so me and this guy were talking about hunting all day long i remember there was probably a foot foot and a half of snow already at that point it was really cold outside uh, we had early um you know early cold snap that year everything was frozen up solid it was really nice to be in this garage because it was a garage it was a cadillac garage it had a heated floor which there aren't too many where i live that's a big deal I mean, we've got winter basically six months out of here, you know, maybe exaggerating a little bit, but we've got snow sometimes. We'll have snow in May, you know, we'll get a May snowstorm. So anyway, a heated floor was really nice. I remember being happy to be in this garage because it was such a nice new shop. And, uh, you know, the guy says, "Will you look at one more thing. And I looked at the clock at 610. I'm thinking, man, it's already been, you know, at this point, it's already been from the point I've left the 12 hour day. It's going to be 13, over 13 hours by the time I get home. I'm tired. I just want to go home. But he says, you don't have to fix it. He said, just diagnose it so that maybe we can order the parts, have you come back later. He said, maybe it'll be something simple, something I could do and you could show me to do. So. It was a Caterpillar diesel engine. They're big yellow engines. And this is a conventional, so it has a hood. So the hood is open. So if you're standing on the side of the truck, if you picture it, the big open hood, this big yellow engine. And he says to me, up here in the front and the bottom, it gets dirty. And he said, I wipe it off. So he got this big black spot in the yellow engine and it bothered him. And he said, so I can wipe it off. Within a couple of weeks, this big black dirty spot comes back on the engine. He said, so I know it must be seeping oil out of somewhere. He said, but I can't tell where it's coming from. It's not running out. It's not dripping. I don't have to add it. He said, but I just hate the way it looks. and I want it fixed. So I had been trained, factory trained on Caterpillar diesel engines. So immediately on this series engine, I'm thinking it's one of three things in that area. So in order to to figure it out, I've got to go underneath the truck and look from the bottom. If you're here today and you've never had the opportunity or maybe desire to look underneath a big truck, picture the big chrome bumper in the front, right? So the new trucks have got plastic bumpers, white and black a lot of times, but the older trucks have big chrome bumpers. So this front bumper, this truck was chrome, and you've got that little bit of space between the bottom of the bumper and the ground, right? There's not much space. So if you were to get on your knees in front of the truck, looking from the front to the back, and you're looking in that space from the bottom of the bumper down, and you were to look underneath, what you would see the lowest thing to the ground is the front axle. And the reason why is this. Here's the two front wheels that move when you turn your steering wheel, and out of the middle of those wheels, that axle connects, and it drops down, it goes from the left side to the right side, just like this. So this is a big steel I-beam that's carrying this five to six tons of weight, empty. So Leonard, the other mechanic, had jacked up that axle on the passenger side to remove the wheel so that we could get in with an engine hoist and lift off the big one-piece cylinder head from the passenger side of the truck. So the wheel is off. Leonard is going to... It's where he worked. I mean, this is his job. He's going to come back Friday morning. He's going to put that wheel back on. The air cleaner's off. He's going to put the air cleaner back on. There was some radiator strut rods and a couple odds and ends of peripheral stuff that we had to take off to get down and do the repair. But I can run the engine. The technical part of the job that I was called in to do is is done at this point. So... Uh, He says where the the dirty spot is, and he had just crawled off from underneath the truck. I had done everything from the top, and he was my helper, and and I had him doing stuff from the bottom. So he drained the oil, he drained the coolant, you know, blah, 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 all that stuff. He would taken off the wheel. Unfortunately, when he had removed the front wheel, he had not used any jack stands or safety equipment to hold the truck. There was just a jack. It's a 20-ton capacity bottle jack underneath that axle. The axle is like, you know, roughly this wide. And it's got just a little arc to it. There's a little steel seam, and the top of these jacks have got a little cross thing. And a lot of times you could put that steel seam would fit real nice into the groove of the top of the jack so it wouldn't move. And I had jacked up plenty of stuff. I grew up working in a diesel repair shop that my father owned. So I had jacked up plenty of stuff just like that, just like I saw he had jacked it up. So when I looked under there and I saw that there was no jack stand or blocking, it was on the jack. It had been on the jack for three days. The truck's been running 15 or 20 minutes. I mean, I'm thinking it's pretty safe. So there's a little tool that mechanics use to go underneath vehicles called the creeper. And I'm guessing there's probably some, some people here who work with their hands like I did. And there's a big difference. For those people who work with their hands, you're going to know exactly what I'm saying. There's a big difference between cheap tools and expensive tools. And if you work for a living with your hands, I don't care if it's a plumber a carpenter or a mechanic... You want to have good tools because cheap tools are going to break. They're going to not do the job correctly. They're going to wear out. There's all these reasons, right? And for a mechanic, one of the worst cheap tools you could have is a cheap creeper. And there's a lot of reasons for that, too. If you have a cheap creeper, when you try to roll underneath a vehicle, every crack that you hit, it stops. It stops. Or if you try to go left, they will go right. I mean, because of the way the the wheels spin and stuff. It's just, they'll pinch you underneath here. The cheap ones only have four wheels. The the, the expensive ones have six wheels. The cheap ones have little wheels. The expensive ones have big wheels so that it doesn't stop over every pebble and every grain of sand. So I looked down. He had just crawled up underneath the truck. He wants me to look at this dirty spot, and I look down, and there's this cheap piece of junk creeper. It's got these little bitty small wheels, four of them. It's plastic. It's holocort. I'm thinking to myself, I don't even want to get on thing. It's just going to make me mad. So I look in the back of my truck, and here I've got my you know, $300 snap-on creeper all the way to the front of the utility, and it's all strapped down, and I just want to go home. So I thought, you know what? Forget it. I'll just use his cheap creeper. It, I'm, I'm taking the time to share that detail because... And it plays an important part. I lay down on his cheap creeper on my back, and I'm able to go underneath the front bumper, feet first. So I'm going go underneath the front bumper, feet first. You can picture it right in the center of the truck. And I slip underneath the uh, engine because I'm looking at the bottom engine. As I do, I stop. The engine's running because we're running to test that leak. And I, it's been running, again, you know, long enough it hasn't leaked. So I say to Leonard, go ahead, shut it off. I don't need it running to look... For this, so I go underneath, and where I stopped underneath the engine to look at the part that I needed to look at in the front of the engine, it just so happens that that axle was right here, basically between the bottom of my ribs and my pelvic. And again, the axles like this wide, it's about this tall. It's shaped like a big solid steel I-beam. That's what it is. And again, remember, five to six tons of weight on on this I-beam, held up by a jack on this side. I'm underneath it, and it's maybe an inch or two above me. When, the, when it's not on a jack, a lot of these trucks, a little guy like me on my low, low, uh, low rider creeper, I could slip underneath those axles, and it would, like, drag on my uniform and make my uniform dirty because those things are always collect the dirt and the grime and stuff. And a big guy would have to go around them. So, I mean, it is the lowest thing on the truck. So I'm underneath it. I'm looking up. I tell him, shut it off. Leonard had a wooden leg, has a wooden leg. He went up to get inside the truck. So there's a pull handle on the side of the cab. So he grabbed with one hand of the pull hand and he grabbed the steering wheel with the other hand. And when he pulled himself in, the steering wheel moved because it has power steering and the engine's running. The problem is the driver's side wheel is still on ground. And when that driver's side wheel moved, connected to the axle that's on the jack on this side... I saw movement. He got in the truck, the weight of him, you know, big guy, the weight of the truck shifts and it's air ride, so it kind of shifts like that, and that's normal. But when he did, and he grabbed that steering wheel and things were moving, I saw movement in the peripheral vision of my left eye. I turned my head just in time to see that that jack had slipped all the way out to the edge when he had grabbed the wheel and the, you know, the steering wheel and moved that wheel and it rocked the axle. The jack slipped out and it was teetering like this. That's what the movement was. I was seeing that teetering. And before I could even blink or think, that thing shot out like a rocket. And this ten to 12,000 pounds away, weight crashed the cement through the middle of my body. It hit the cement. The, the axle hit the cement. I could reach out and touch where it was touching the cement. When it fell through the middle of my body, blood came out from the inside out on impact like this. Out my mouth. And this blob of blood landed on the cement next to me. I remember calling out to Jesus and I just said, Lord, help me. I said it a second time. I don't know if I was worried that he didn't hear me the first time or what, but I said, Lord, help me. And I looked down, and there was about an inch of space between the bottom of the axle and the cement. So I know how wide it is. So I know my body is about one inch thick right here. That plastic hollow core creeper had collapsed to nothing. It just flattened right up because there was nothing there. No wheels. No, it was a plastic hollow cord. So it was, you know, maybe, I don't know, eighth inch thick or whatever it was. If I had been on my snap on creeper, there's a steel cross member right there. There's an extra set of wheels right there. There's a steel cross member here. It would have been a pinch point and the thickness of what my body was when the axle fell me is the thickness of what that steel cross member was. So if I would have been on my good creeper, I would have literally been sheared in two parts. But instead, I was just crushed. So I'm crushed about an inch thick here. I'm about two inches thick here, double, you know, like this. I was thinner than my spine in the middle of my body. My L4, L5 vertebrae were both broken, spider cracked, and the radiology report says D-shaped. So in the middle of my body, picture it, thinner than my spine. Look at your own body and try and imagine that. I mean, it's so I can't tell you how bad it hurt. The, the pain was off the charts. Like, I, I think I've got a pretty high pain tolerance, but that was like way too much. And you know, it's just overwhelming. That's all I can all I can describe is this overwhelming pain. This the initial shock, but then this pain that's coming behind it. And Leonard never got to shut the truck off. Because the jack slipped before he was able to shut the key off. So when the jack slipped and it fell, he got down out of the truck. It caved in the bottom, of the passenger side, uh, fuel tank on this side, the chrome bumper behind my head. Was, the chrome bumper's just back here behind my head. I was just underneath it. The chrome bumper is dented. So Leonard got out of the truck, and he's looking at me from underneath the bumper, that gap that we were talking about before, like right right out here, you know. He's looking at me, and I'm looking at him, and his eyes are like, Burr. and And he went into shock. Because we could only see, I could only see from here up. And the axle was through me, right? The creeper's flat, you know, like I said, just that little gap of air there. I'm literally crushed in half. So I'm looking at him, and he's looking at me. And he went into shock, and the look on his face was guilt. Leonard had known me since I was a young, you know, 10, 12, something like that. I was 36 years old the day of the accident. Um... And there was this look on his face like it's all my fault. You know, you could see that. That's what the look was. And he froze. And I'm looking at him, and he's looking at me, and I started saying, Leonard, call 911. Please, call 911. Frozen. He was in shock. He froze. I don't know how long it lasted. I don't know how many times I said that. To me, it seemed like forever. But it could have been 10 seconds. I don't know, but it seemed like forever. He finally shook out of it. He gets on the phone, calls 911. So you have to imagine, in the area where a logging camp, logging business is going to be, is in the middle of nowhere. So it's a volunteer fire department from a little small town, a ways away. So Leonard knows if he, somebody's got to get the truck off me, it's going to be him. So he goes and gets the jack, the jack that's shot out. I mean, he can't put the jack back underneath the axle because the axle's now in the cement. So there's no way to put it or anything to jack it up off me. And it's just this short jack. So he's trying to figure out how he's going to jack the truck up off me with this short jack. Well, for those of you who aren't familiar, picture side view. I'm going to give you side view of the the frame and the engine and the hood's open, right? So the engine's here in the frame. And if you're looking from, let's say, you know, your side that there's a a leaf spring, the suspension of this truck, this leaf spring connects to the frame up here and it comes down, and the axle goes this way, and here's your front wheels, and it comes down, then it comes back up, it connects the frame, so you've got this big curved leaf spring on each side of the frame, on each side of the truck, and he slid, as I'm laying underneath the truck, the passenger side is on my left here, I watch him slide that same bottle jack underneath this arch of this curved leaf spring that's just attached to the axle that's on me, and he's going to try and jack it up off me, but the problem is, it's on a He's trying to jack up on a curve, on an arc. You don't want to jack something up on an arc because it's just going to slip. So I'm looking at him, and I'm begging him. He said it so- later. He said it sounded like mumbling. But I'm saying, no, I know what I was saying. No, not there, not there. It's going to slip. And, you know, he's, it's the only place he's got. So he's jacking, and it's slipping. I'm watching. The jack's not, it's not going up. It's going up, but the truck's not going up because the jack's just slipping up the arch of the spring. And then it finally caught on a little edge of a piece of metal. I mean, it's... The top of this jack is maybe like the size of a silver dollar and the edge that it was caught on was just like barely so there's this little flat clamp for the short leaves right there and it caught on the edge of that flat clamp so it, now it starts going up and i know it's like barely barely hanging on i can see it it's barely on it and i'm thinking man if things are gonna slip it's just gonna fall on me again so he's jacking it up jacking it up jacking it up. And finally he hits the the truck up in the air now I could see my whole body again. And when I look down, so I've got a work uniform with the name of my company on it and Bruce's Mobile Service, right? So Bruce, Bruce's Mobile Service. Big patches, couple of pockets here. Right below the pockets, right here, side view, my uniform went down, followed along my spine, basically, and came back up at my pelvic. I have this ridiculous flat spot and it was so, um, I don't know, I, I struggle with the right word, surreal, but out-of-the-ordinary, bizarre, whatever, to see my body like that, I couldn't relate it to anything I'd ever seen or known, and the only thing that I could relate it to was cartoons from a child. Now, I know that sounds crazy that I'm thinking that after this truck fell on me, but when I looked at my body with the flat spot laying right at that truck, I'm thinking, Wiley Coyote, run over by Acme truck, and he's got the flat spot. And I, I mean, all this crazy pain, but I think cartoon when I see my body flat like that. And the next thought was, there's no way I should be able to look at my body like this and be alive. Nobody should be able to be alive and look at their body like that. And the, the follow-up thought to that is, yeah, you're, you're alive for seconds, buddy. You're, you're dying right now. That's what's going through your mind. You're dying. So, I mean, you have got this crazy amount of pain. I've got this flat spot. The jack is just barely holding on. And I start begging him, get me out, get me out from under this truck. He's not gonna touch me. He's afraid. He could tell I've got a back injury. People have been told you not to move somebody when they've got a back injury. So he's like, nope. So the, bump, the bumper's back here. I reach back, I grab the bottom of the chrome bumper. The, the creeper is crushed flat in the middle, but it's got the wheels on the end, and I'm able to drag myself out this far. Took everything I had. Then I put my, and I realized if the truck falls, because I'm still afraid that that jack's going to slip, it's going to fall on me again, that now it's going to fall on my legs. So I want to do one more push to get my body all the way, you know, at least this far out so that if it falls again, it's not going to get my body. So when I got to here, you know, I pulled myself out and I got this much is now sticking out from me at the front bumper, if you can imagine it. When I get to here and I got my palms there, I'm going to do that push. My body began shaking. And trembling so bad. And I, for whatever reason, fixated on my right arm. And my bicep and my arm, my body was just shaking like crazy. And I couldn't do it. I couldn't do the push. As soon as the truck was jacked up off of me, as soon as the truck was jacked up off me, this, I had a crazy pain. But the second that it was jacked up off me, this incredible weakness was taking over. What I didn't know at the time was I had five places that major arteries were completely severed. Doctors, I don't make this claim, doctors make the claim, I'm the only person in the entire world, not the United States, the entire world, that they can say that's ever lived after having major arteries severed in as many places as I did, for me to be here with you folks today. Nobody else. There's a couple different studies. University of Southern California did the biggest one on the mortality rate versus the number of arteries severed. They took my case, compared it against that one, compared it against one at John Hopkins, compared it against one at Mayo. But the biggest one that had the most data was, was uh, Southern Cal. We, again, we found this out much, you know, a year later, eight months later, whatever it was. So I don't know it at the time, but that's why I'm feeling so weak is because I'm just pumping out all my blood. My superior mesoteric artery, or the biggest one that goes along your small intestine, that one's completely severed in three places. Two other arteries, completely severed. They say if you have one major artery severed, again, I'm not a doctor. I don't claim to have medical knowledge. From what I've told, doctors have told me eight to ten minutes you're going to bleed out if you have one major artery severed and there's no tourniquet to stop the bleeding. I had five, five places. So I'm pumping out my blood. That's why I'm going incredibly weak. I get to this point, my body's shaking, and every breath, because my lungs were collapsed, Every breath is hard. I'm, every breath is a fight. I'm struggling for every breath. And they're getting further and further apart, and I know it. I know where that's going. Right? You can see where this is going to end. So because it, of the time, a day when he called 911, and those in 2006 they were still using pagers at this volunteer fire department, these guys' pagers went off. Well, the two guys that got there, the first, were driving on their way home from work in the middle of nowhere, and it just happened to be minutes from there. So the first two guys get there, the first guy gets there and he sees my body is crushed in half, and he knows there's no local hospital in Timbuktu that's going to be able to do anything for me. So he says, We need Medflight. So he calls the radius and waves us for Medflight. So the next guy gets there. They're trying to help me breathe because every breath is a struggle. And so they start manipulating my arms to manipulate the diaphragm, apparently, to help me with some breaths. It's not it helped a little bit, but it's not helping in the big picture. Every breath is further and further apart. Every breath and breath is painful and hard to take. And I'm getting weaker and weaker, and I can just feel this weakness taking over. And I've got my head slumping to the side. And my body was in shock, just like Leonard wasn't shocked just from seeing it. Well, my body is going in shock from feeling it. And something about shock is your heart rate is elevated, right? You got this pulse. So everybody here is probably can think of many times where you were doing something active, jogging, running, you know. Chasing your kids, whatever. You're doing something, and you can actually hear your heart pounding. Does anybody experience that? You know what I mean? Or you can actually hear your heartbeat. Well, when your heartbeat is racing like mine was, if I had a hand mic, I'd be, I do this to mimic the sound of a heart, right? So my heart's just racing away. And it was just like shutting off an engine. I literally heard my heart go and stop. And at the last bump, last beat my spirit left my body and went up on the roof of the garage so i'm going to stop there and say this if you read google it out of body experience near-death experience right now according to studies based on percentages based on percentages they say that there is there's a range eight to ten million people alive today who have had an out of body or near-death experience after a heart attack, after a stroke, after drug overdose, after trauma, something, their heart stops, their spirit leaves their body. For me, all that does is prove what the Bible says is true. We, have, we all have a spirit that lives inside our body, right? It says in the Bible we're made in, what, the image of God. And God is what? God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. Is that what the Bible says? So three-part God. It says we're made just like Him. So that means we're three-parts. You see my body. 51-year-old Bruce, you see him. What you can't see is my soul and my spirit. A lot of times people interchange those two things. They're not interchangeable. It's very clear. Paul talks about it in, in two spots. talks about your soul and your spirit. It's two separate things. Your spirit that eternal part of you. You receive Jesus, man. Jesus gets it. It's, it's that eternal thing that he puts inside of the human being. Your soul, I've heard it described as mind, will, emotions. The soulish area of you. Your carnal area, your mind, will, emotions, your soulish area. So you've got a body, you've got a soul and a spirit, according to the Bible. My spirit left my body at the point that my heart stopped. My spirit left my body. The Bible says when we die, what happens? When Jesus died on the cross, what does the Bible say? He gave up his, his spirit left his body. So that's going to happen to every single person in this room. Picture this, in 120 years, even the babies are going to be dead. Every person in this church in 120 years is going to be dead if Jesus doesn't come back first. And when that happens, your spirit is going to leave your body just like mine did. That's why 8 to 10 million people have experienced it. I'm a skeptic. I mean, God has a sense of humor. Only God would pick me to have this happen. Because I'm the, like, eternal skeptic type person. That's my thinking. That's why I've been since I've been little. So if you're skeptic like me, just think about this. Just, let's just do some skeptic thinking. 8 to 10 million people based on the the percentages who've had an out-of-body experience. Let's say, we'll go to the short number. Let's say 8 million people, right, have had one. Let's say 75% of these people are crazy or lying. The vast majority, 75%. That still leaves mathematicians how many? 2 million. That still leaves 2 million people alive today who've had an out-of-body experience at the point that their heart stopped. If the majority are lying or crazy, again, all it does is prove what the Bible says is true. We have a spirit inside our body. This is what the national averages is. And it's, it's different in churches because it kind of affects it because it's a spiritual thing. But if it was national average in 100 people in in 100 people, right, there's going to be three of us who've had out of body experience in churches. The number is higher. Not much. But a little bit higher. I've done this several times. We, I have my wife calling up to people, or I have an elder calling up people say, How many people are in here? If you're willing, if you've had our experience, raise your hand. Okay, I'm one. Boop, boop. A couple of the hands will go up. It's, it's always like bang, bang, bang. It always stays really close to that number. So it proves we've got a body. We've got a spirit that lives inside that body. And when you die, when your heart stops, your spirit leaves your body. So that's what happened. Near death or out of body experiences, right? So my body leaves, or my spirit stays. My, sorry body stays, spirit leaves. I'm up in the roof of the garage looking down on the accident scene. This is, what, this is what I'm experiencing up here. Literally, I say this is the only way I can describe it. I was having a, a party in the ceiling by myself. I have never felt so good. If you're here today, and I, I say this because I know it's, it ha- it's, it's real. If you're here today and you've lost a loved one that you know believed in Jesus... Don't you dare feel sorry for them. Don't you dare feel sorry for them. Don't feel bad for them. You can feel bad for yourself because you miss them. But don't you dare feel sorry for them because I'll tell you what. I felt the best I've ever felt. I, it's, it was peace times a million. I, I don't know how else to describe it. Peace times a million. I'm up there in peace times a million. I am so disconnected from the accident scene. I don't even realize that poor slob underneath the truck is me. I'm just looking at it all happen, just watching all like, oh, look, yeah, there's a guy down there. He's hurt. I'm listening. I'm listening to all the conversations. The people are coming from the volunteer fire department. They're showing up onesie twosies. Everybody's coming in the main door here. They're all coming in. I'm just listening to everybody. And Leonard is down like this. He's on his knees. And he's running his fingers through my hair and he's crying. And he's apologizing. He's saying stuff like this I'm such an old fool. I should be the one that's dead, not you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Because he jacked up the truck and not used the safety equipment. He knew better. So he's apologizing to this body down there that does not have a heartbeat or a pulse. They're not going to do CPR because I've got a massive chest injury. So they're all just standing around politely talking as the people are showing up. Onesie, twosie, onesie, twosie. So they're all coming, they're all coming, they're all standing around. And I look down, I'm like, I'm listening to Leonard, and all of a sudden it was like, uh, you ever watch a movie and the camera is like focused in really tight on something? And then they back the camera and it pans out, and all of a sudden you see a broader view? And that's exactly the sensation or the, the what I experienced because I was like really focused in on Leonard and what he was saying. And then it was like the camera panned out and I realized, wow, look, there's two angels down there. Just like we read. Just like we read here, just like Pastor read, verse 11. For he, God, will command his angels concerning you. So apparently, when I said, Lord, help me, he sent two angels. Bam. Johnny on the spot. They showed up. So Leonard is down there on his knees, six foot one, six foot two. Just... Uh, is there a somebody six foot one, six foot two? I can use really quick for a really quick sick. Anybody? There it is. There's the guy. Thanks. If I could just use you. Could I have you come here? How good are your knees? (laughs) Well, then we might have to pray for you. Okay. So because I, can you get on your knees? All right. All right. If you can't, we'll pray. So you're going to be Leonard. This is Leonard. Okay. Okay. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I should have said prerequisite. Somebody 6'1", with good knees. Okay. So Leonard, he's, he's Leonard. He's got his hand. He's running his fingers through my hair. He's apologizing. On each side of Leonard is an angel, shoulder to shoulder with him, on their knees. But instead, their heads are about two feet taller than Leonard. So these angels had to be approximately eight feet tall based on Leonard shoulder to shoulder. The one from the passenger side, he's reached over. He's got his hands right in the middle of my body where I'm crushed flat, just like this. The one from the driver's side, shoulder to shoulder with Leonard reached over. He's got his hands in the middle, right where I'm crushed flat. I'm looking from above and I'm like, oh, look, those angels are down there to help that guy. That's nice right just watching it leonard's crying he doesn't know that they're there he just, apparently he doesn't see him but he's he's crying and he's touching me and i'm just saying and i don't know it's me at this point it's just this guy in the truck i'm just watching it all happen but that's how i know that's why i can tell you they're about eight feet tall because i know from looking from above way up here 14 15 60 feet near looking down their heads on their on their knees like him They're like this can you picture a huge thank you thank you for the visual lord jesus pray for his knees in jesus name Amen. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. So I'm watching above. There's the angels. They've got their hands reached over. They're touching the middle where, he's, where I'm flat. And the people are, are all uh, quietly, respectfully standing around talking. And in the back door, back corner, back there, a red-haired lady and a gray-haired man came in. She was the only woman, and he was the only gray-haired guy. And they came up. Now, I'm going to just stop right there. And A year later, when I got out I ended up spending over a year in the hospital. When you add it up, all my days, I spent more than a year in the hospital. But when I got out of the hospital, I wanted to go and talk to that volunteer fire department and tell them, thank you. So it was a surprise. So I went there on their monthly meeting when I know they're going to have that monthly meeting. And I went in. I got there early when it was just the chief there. And I said, hey, man, I just want to. It's I'm the guy that, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I just want to say thank you. So 30 people are in that volunteer fire department. They show up and they don't know. They don't recognize me or I'm sitting there. and They don't know. Like, who's this guy? Why is he here? And when they started the meeting, the guy said, hey, this guy wants to talk to you guys. And I said, look, a year over a year ago, I said, 10 of you. I could count because I remember being in the ceiling. We're here. And I started going around the room. It was really easy. She was the only woman. And she had red hair. I said, you, the lady with the red hair. You, you were there. The only guy with gray hair. You were there. And I started, I nailed eight out of the ten. I picked eight out of the ten people a year later. You guys were there. And I said, I was the guy underneath the truck that the truck fell on. And they're all like, whoa, you're that guy. So I said in front of 30 people to the red-haired lady and the gray-haired guy, why? Think about this now. Skeptics, come on. Why did you come in the back door? Everybody else came in the front door where the main entrance is and there's a blacktop driveway. Why did... I don't even know what's out the back of that shop. Why did you come in the back door? And they had to think about it because it had been for a year and they're like, what? Oh, yeah. They rode together. Like, oh, we were pager. They got the address. They're coming. They missed the driveway. They drive by. All the flashing lights, they drive by because it's off the roadways and they... There was a secondary gravel driveway, apparently, that came up to the back of the shop. So they missed the first driveway, see all the flashing lights. They're like, oh, I bet this driveway goes to it. So they go into the back driveway that comes up to the back of the shop that I didn't know was there, parked in the back of the shop, came in the back door. Now, look, it's a little detail, but what does it prove? The real Bruce was up there because Bruce underneath the truck with no heartbeat and no pulse shouldn't be able to tell anybody where they came from. Come on, right? So those 30 people are like, whoa, right? Right. Because they knew that I'm able to tell them details that I shouldn't have been able to tell them. I told them what color the board is they put underneath my body. So anyway, no heartbeat, no pulse. Depending on which person in that room you believe, six to ten minutes. Dead. No heartbeat, no pulse. The red-haired lady comes. She gets down between the angels. She's feeling for a pulse. There was a guy in Bivers, a big guy in Bivers, standing with a smaller guy in the passenger front corner. Again, Spirit Bruce is up there. The big guy with Bibbers had his arms crossed. The lady got down between the angels. She's feeling, frantically feeling for a pulse. Can't understand why nobody's doing anything. And he says, to her, It's too late. She ignores him. She's still feeling around. He says, it's, He said something. You know, they only had a second interaction. It's too late. He's, he's dead. She ignores him. She says, What's his name? Leonard responds, Bruce Finetta. This woman starts doing this Bruce Finetta, come back. Bruce Finetta, open your eyes. Come back. Now, you've got ten people who have medical training. Even if it's a volunteer firefighter, they have minimal medical training. And they know this is not how you bring somebody back. And they all stop talking and they all look at her like, she's crazy. Like, what are you doing? Like, is she nuts? Like, what's she doing? They're all giving her that look. I'm watching from above. They're all giving the crazy lady look. So she's getting louder and louder and louder. And all I can tell you is something about it sounded familiar. I didn't know that was my name. It's, I, I know that probably sounds weird, but that's the only way I can describe it. Something sounded familiar. And when she kept saying, Bruce, come back, come back, I started, my spirit started creeping out of the ceiling. Coming down, coming down. Then about, when I got about halfway, it went really fast. And my spirit came into my body. It seemed like through the top, my heart started. Now, no CPR, no drugs. This woman saying, Bruce is going to come back. My spirit comes in. She was praying. I'm going to give you this. Here's a a little spoiler alert. She was a Christian, and she was praying, asking God to bring you back to life. So my spirit comes back in, and the first thing, man, I was just feeling the best I had ever. I mean, I've wanted to feel that way my whole life, right? My whole life, I've longed for that. And now I'm back in this body that's crushed in half. It's... The absolute farthest spectrum, right? The best to the worst. And I hope this doesn't offend anybody. But when my body, you know, I came back in that body. And it's hurt so bad. I immediately said, oh, a four-letter word that means fertilizer. I'm like, oh, no, this hurts so bad. It's like, oh, 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 it hurts so bad. No, no, I don't want this. And when I said, no, I don't want this, my heart stopped. And my spirit left my body. and went right back with And I'm like, oh, man, this is so much better. But. Out-of-body experiences, near-death experiences for Christians, what do they usually see? Tunnel with a light on the end of it. Immediately, at that point, I come up on it the second time, at a 45-degree angle approximately, a tunnel going out of the roof of the garage with a bright light at the end of it a million miles away. And I can tell you, I know that I know that I know, and that where I was right there. I, without Beyond a shadow of a doubt, I knew that heaven was on the end of the tunnel. I, look, I've, I share my testimony like this, like I'm doing right now. And inevitably afterwards, if I have time to, to hang out and talk, people come up and they'll be like, they'll look both ways. They'll tell me their angel stories. I saw an angel once. They'll tell me about their angels. You know, they'll, they'll say that stuff or they'll say, yeah, I had out of body experience. I've talked to Christians. You could read books. I know people have got to the end of the tunnel and it's heaven. But then God or an angel says, no, it's not your time. You have to go back. I didn't get there. I get about halfway there. I'm about halfway there. And person around to come back. So I get sucked backwards out of the tunnel. I'm looking at the tunnel, of the light. I get sucked backwards. Now I'm on the roof of the garage. I see those angels. I see Shannon. That's the lady's name. And I see her and I'm like, oh, then my spirit comes back in my eyes. Like, oh, I come back in. and It's this horrible pain. Now, I saw those angels tonight. I'll, I'll elaborate a little more on the angels. Eight feet tall. Like I said, two hundred ninety sometimes angels are mentioned in the Bible. And sometimes it says angels look like normal people. When people share their angel stories with me and they look like normal people, the only way they know they're angels is they disappear. That's how they know it was an angel because it will, like, they turn and then all of a sudden, where'd that person go? There's no place that person could have gone, right? So the angel disappears. So that's how they know if it was the kind in of the Bible. There's a spot in the new verse where it says, Do not forget to entertain strangers as some have entertained angels unaware, right? So there's that kind. And then there's the kind where people see angels and they've got wings. The angels I saw did not have wings. They were about eight feet tall, no wings, very big men, broad shoulders, very muscular. Very, very muscular men. Like I said, they reached over they had their head. This is mentioned in the Bible. Their robes were white, bright white, like emanating light. Like they had freshly been bleached, ladies. You know what I'm saying? Like bright white, white. So... They've got their hands over, they're touching me, they're not moving, they weren't talking, I never got to see their faces. But I could tell from their bodies, shape, and form, they were obviously big men. So in the Bible, there is once solid, once where you could go either way, where it says that there's even female angels. In the Old Testament, there's one example of a female angel, for sure solid. But anyway, these were obviously men. And the reason why I say that is, they were men, but they had long hair. That went all the way down to where their belt is on their robe. Now, I know in some circles or whatever, there's people say that guys shouldn't have long hair. I don't like long hair. I like short hair, me personally. But I just know this. The two angels that God sent had long hair that went all the way down to here. So if you've got a problem with guys with long hair, you might have a problem when you get to heaven. It might be an issue for you. I don't know. And don't say anything to these two guys because they are but like, they might not take it. So... I'm watching. They got their hands down. I'm like, oh, it seemed like this, oh, these, these nice angels, you know. They're helping that guy. Now I find out, oh, wait. That guy's me, right? And now I come back in that second time, and this horrible pain comes back. And I thought, wait a minute, angels. And I looked on my left, and I looked on my right. I couldn't see them with these eyes. They were there. He sends his angels. We just read it. But we don't get to see it a lot of times in the natural realm. It was in the spirit eyes I could see it. He, in fact... Later, I had to think it through because later when I saw those, you know, when I saw the angels from the, the ceiling, it didn't seem like a big deal. It seemed natural. It seemed normal. And I was like, why did that not seem like such a big deal to me? Because in the spirit realm, angels are normal. Like it wouldn't be a big deal in the spirit realm. But when I came back inside my body, it's a big deal. Right. So I'm back inside my body the second time I look on my left. I look on my right. I, I'm scared. It scares me because I couldn't see the angels that bothered me. And there's this horrible, horrible pain. There's a fear. All this emotion, turmoil. And in that craziness, I hear a voice. Again, it's loud. It's pretty solid. And it just says, you know what? Just give up and die. Just go to heaven. Go. There was another voice that was quiet. It wasn't a whisper, but it was, it was, it was quiet. It wasn't, he wasn't yelling. Very stable, very calm. And I know that was God, and He said, "If you want to live, you're going to have to fight, and it's going to be a hard fight." And I was like, "Forget this! I like the other voice. just get out of here and go 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 to heaven." And so I left. Didn't, I mean, I, as soon as I made the choice, see, I don't know how it all works, but I know God is a God of free will, and it says over and over in the Bible, He's given us free will. He's given us free will. And I said, God, why would you give us free will when you know we're just going to screw up? What about Adam and Eve? He knew. Did he know they were going to mess up in the garden? Yep. But he still gave them free will anyway. And I pondered that. And I pondered that. And this is what I've come to. I think, and I could be totally wrong. I, I don't know. This is my guess. I think the reason why, maybe one of the reasons why God has given us free will, maybe one of the biggest reasons why. Picture it. Let's say if you were a single person. This seems like I'm going to go off on a rabbit trail. But Wait. Let's say if you were a single person, you wanted to get married, and, and you picked somebody. You know, you go to Walmart, I don't know, and you're oh, like, oh, there's a, you're a single guy, and you see this gal, and you're like, oh, I'd like to marry her. And you go up to her, and you put her arm, drag her home, lock her up in the closet, call somebody. Like, can you marry us? She's underneath the door. She's, she'll answer from underneath the door in there. Like, force somebody to marry you? How rewarding would that be for anybody? God is not, see, God's the same way. He wants us to love Him out of free will. Not because He's forcing us. He could force us. He could force us to love Him. He could force us like robots. He's like, no, I've got to give Him free will. Because if I give Him free will and they love me, it's going to be so rewarding. See it? So He gives us free will. He gives us free will about salvation. He gives us free will about pretty much lots of stuff, right? So I made up my mind, free will. Nope, I don't want to be here. It hurts. The voice said, just go. Just go. Who do you think the voice was that said, just go, just go to heaven? I didn't see either one of those voices. I didn't see who was, but you know what? I'm convinced one was good and one was bad. And the bad one was telling me to go to heaven. Now, why would the bad one tell me to go to heaven? Because he saw the angels and he's like, oh, wait, time out. I see what God's got cooking here. There's a miracle cooking here. No, no, buddy, you just go to heaven. You just go to heaven so you don't tell... You know, people about what what happened, how God saved you, how He sends His angels, like we just read. No, you just go ahead and go. He, I'll take one for the team. You just go to heaven. So, man, I did it. Boom. I go up. I'm in the ceiling. The, the tunnel opens up. I get in the tunnel. I'm going towards the light, happy to go be with Jesus, excited to go meet Jesus. But oh no, two month old zealous baby Christian won't stop. Come back, come back, come back. So I stop. I get stuck backwards out of the tunnel. I'm looking like no, lady, no, and. and Back inside my body, I go. It's like, oh, man, this pain. And she looks at me, and she's right here. She was, her face was right here. And she's like, mister, you're on the verge of life and death. I'm thinking, lady, you have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> she says, what do you have to fight for? Do you have a wife? Do you have kids? I had not even remembered that I was married and had four little kids. It had not even crossed my mind. Sorry, ladies. But you know what? The pain was so bad, that's all I had. Crazy pain. That's all was all-consuming, crazy pain. But when she said, what do you have to fight for? Do you have a wife? Do you have kids? Immediately, all of a sudden, my spirit, the Holy Spirit lives inside of believers. The spirit inside of me, I knew that the voice that had said, if you want to live, you're going to have to fight and it's going to be a hard fight, was now speaking out of her. That's the way God works. He speaks to Christians through Christians. I mean, in the Bible, he spoke through a donkey, right? So that's kind of like what you got here today. <laughs> but I knew when she was speaking, I knew when she was speaking that it was him, that it was God. And he said, your wife, your kids, it hurt too bad to fight for me. I wouldn't fight for me. It hurt too bad. I'm like, I'm ready to go. That feels too good. But when you reminded me about Lori and the little kids, little, they were little at the time. We had four children in three years because we had identical twins in the middle. And they were still really young, and it's like, oh my gosh, they need me, so I'll stay for them. So she says, what do you have to fight for? So that's what I was going to fight for. My wife and my kids, she says, don't close your eyes. And I'm thinking, lady, if you you knew where I was going every time I closed my eyes, right? So she said, don't close your eyes. You stay here, stay here. Well, I told you, the first guy called MedFlight. The problem is he called MedFlight, but they forgot to call an ambulance. So when the helicopter came from the state's, our state's biggest trauma center, there was no ambulance to take the body or me from the scene of the accident out to where the helicopter could land. So it just turned around and went back to Madison. When I was in the ceiling before she put me back the last time, I'm in the back corner listening to a conversation between the chief and the assistant chief saying, yeah, we're going to get sued over this one. Because they didn't call an ambulance. So. Time is stretching out. Time is stretching out. She prays me back to life the third time. My spirit comes in. She says, what do you have to fight for? Do you have a wife? Do you have kids? I'm thinking of Lord. I'm thinking of the kids. She says, don't close your eyes. At this point now, they called an ambulance. The ambulance comes and picks me up. Takes me, you know, to the next little small town. That little town had a spot where the helicopter could land. And the helicopter landed there, picked me up, and then med-flighted me to our state's biggest trauma center. So when I get to the hospital the 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 nurses are saying what 's your name what 's your birthday what 's your name what's your birthday over and over and i couldn 't answer i didn't have the strength and uh, they took one round of cat scans and then they turned me nine degrees and then the two doctors started arguing about something that i couldn't understand, but because of what the lady had said about keep your eyes on something, I had picked out the one doctor dr sumito so i 'm looking at him and i 'm watching him, and you know they're they're doing their second round or about their uh, the little little motor take you in to the second round of CAT scans. And it was like somebody grabbed a rheostat on the lights and just turned everything dark. And I realized, uh-oh, everything's going dark. But it's me, not the lights. And it's going off my head. I'm, this is, okay, I am dying now. This is it. I'm dying. And so I've been at this point, it's been two over two hours from the point that the truck fell on me. With arteries severed in five places. God what God was doing, it was no accident about the ambulance. God was putting exclamation points on the end of this miracle. So that nobody could say, Oh, it was this, the 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 artery was severed, because there's a thing about arteries getting severed and if they get severed really quick, sometimes they'll pinch off on the ends. And they were saying, Well that's what did it. But that only lasts like ten or fifteen minutes before they open back up and you finish bleeding out. Over two hours, right? From the point the truck's following to this point the doctors are doing their thing. Everything starts getting dark and I blurt out after they've been saying what's your name, what's your birthday over and over and over and I couldn't respond. Not once. I would look at them but I couldn't see anything. All of a sudden I blurt out I'm looking at Dr. Fumito, and I say to him if you don't do something right now I'm going to die and when I said that my both they're, they're trying to put blood in me but it's just leaking out as fast as putting it in. So they, they, they're doing you know they're adding blood to me but it's just leaking out so fast when I said if you don't do something right now I'm going to die and everything was going black on me my blood pressure is zero, zero. Zero, nothing. I, I bottomed out. So they just pulled me out of that thing. We went right around a corner to a, a, their emergency operating room. And I remember a green mask coming down. And I was thinking to myself, thinking like a mechanic, finally, you guys are going to fix it. Like do something. Quit taking pictures and talking, fix it. And so the thing is coming down. I'm like, good, they're going to do it. They're going to fix me. So I, and that's the last thing I remember. Boom. And then they kept me in induced coma for a long, several weeks, whatever it was. Operated on I me mean, lots and lots of times. The first initial night when my wife got there, the doctor came out. He was the head of the trauma department. He got called in from home. Famito so and, and the other doctor started the operation. This guy finished it. And this guy is so good that when the president of the United States would come to Wisconsin, he was the guy they would put on call in case something would happen to the president. I didn't know they do, did that, but that's what they do. When he, before the president goes anywhere, they've already got a team assembled in case anything would happen. So he's that guy. So he's the best of the best. He comes up to my wife and he says this, in all my years of running the trauma department, I have never seen a body so badly traumatized and make it to the hospital life. Your husband must have one hell of a will to fight, is what he told her. But I don't expect him to live through the hour. Cross your fingers. My wife said, I'm not going to cross my fingers. We're praying. He shrugged his shoulders. He doesn't believe in God. He walked away. The deacon from our church said, okay, if the doctor says he's only got one hour to live, every 30 minutes of life that God gives him, we're going to thank God for every 30 minutes. So every 30 minutes I was alive, they'd get together in a circle. These people, my mom, my brothers came, you know, people from my church, my wife, I guess. I don't know who was all there, but this group of people, every 30 minutes would hold hands and say, God, thank you for giving Bruce 30 more minutes of life. They did it all night long. And in the morning, I'm still alive. My wife said to doctor, you said everything is destroyed in there. You've got to do all these operations. All they did was hook up the arteries, pinch you off some, and you know, I mean, my spleen, pancreas, intestines, just, just everything's destroyed. And the doctor's like, he... We can't operate. He's, he's not strong enough. Three or four hours went by. My, mom, my wife went in there and just really gave it to him until he said, okay. So they went and they operated on me all that week, on and off all that week. Like they kept me in a induced coma, like I said, for, for weeks. Or, you know, I don't know. He was old, actually over a month. So I came out of the coma. I didn't know that I still had a breathing tube and something sewn in my nose. I had eight IVs, four and four, a central, a, a line into my heart here. Later, I had a line in my arm too, but besides the, the four IEs in each arm, that's the match, that's the most I could put in. So, um, I wake up and I wanted to talk about the angels. That's the first thing I wanted to say. I just wanted to talk about the angels. And I was trying to talk, but I, I didn't know because I had this tube in my mouth, I couldn't talk. I'm still all whacked out, right? So I want to talk about the angels, but I couldn't. So then, I, you know, they're like, you can't talk. i got the tube. And I'm like, oh, okay. So then I motioned for something to write with. And she gave me a pen or pencil or whatever. And I just was going to write the word angel. I couldn't make the A come out of here to here. Six months before I could read or write. It was longer than that before I could walk. But... I was so frustrated that I couldn't put the A from there to there and just say, I saw angels. But as soon as they took the tube out, man, you couldn't shut me up. I was telling every nurse that came there and I was telling every doctor, I saw these two huge angels. They were touching me. You know, I just I tell everybody about these angels. The, the the atheist doctor would be like, mm-hmm, yeah. Cra- you know, he looks at like a crazy Christian, right? So they do multiple operations. Uh, I get sent home for... A week, a couple days, maybe two weeks, go back in for a month or two. Go back in, in and out, in and out, in and out. My last operation was in December of 2007. Accident happened November of 06. My last operation is December 07. Like, first week of 07. So the doctor had to remove, basically, uh, humans between your ribs... And your pelvic is your small intestine is right in here, right? Small intestines. I've been told by the doctors average. It's it's different for everybody, but the average is 18 to 22 to 24 feet, 18 to 22 to 24 feet of small intestine. I don't know what carpenters help me out here. What's 18 to 20 some feet? Talk to me further shorter. I don't know. 18 to 20 some feet. Is that accurate? Maybe here to the wall. Okay. So that's how much intestine you have in your belly. Adults. And it's all wrapped up like a ball of worms. Mine is destroyed. Gone. So they saved two pieces. So instead of 18 to 20-some feet, if this is accurate, I've got this much. That's not enough to live on. I'm dying in the hospital. So they're feeding me intravenously. While they're feeding me intravenously, I'm dying, starving to death. I lose 65 pounds. Unrecognizable. My own aunt came to visit me after, I don't know, four or five months. She came into the room and said, Oh, excuse me, I'm looking for somebody else. And she went to leave. It's my own aunt. She didn't recognize me. That's how much lost. It's 65 pounds. I'm unrecognizable to this person. So I'm starving. I'm dying in the hospital because I don't have enough intestine. And then one of the pieces they tried to save died because it was so badly destroyed. So now I've got like this much. And it's just getting, And I'm, I'm mad at God. Honestly, I'm going to be totally honest. I was mad at God. I couldn't understand why he'd send the angels Why do you say this the lady to pray me back to life three times when he's just going to let me die in the hospital, starve to death, miserable, right? So I'm mad at God. On the other side of the country, my wife had had me on prayer chains all over. And on the other side of the country, God wakes up a guy in New York. I'm from Wisconsin, way over in New York. God wakes up a guy at five o'clock in the morning one day. I was on a prayer chain at their church. And God says, fly to Wisconsin. Pray for that guy that's on your prayer chain. I'm, I'm going to do a miracle. Well, the guy told his wife about it. They talked about it. He's like, wow, that was crazy. He must have ate too much pizza last night. The next morning at 5 a.m., God wakes him up and says, buy a plane ticket. Fly to Wisconsin and pray for that guy. He did. When he did, he showed up the hospital. At the church that I went to, when, we're, when you're praying, you just keep your hands to yourself, okay? Nobody touching nobody when you're praying. That was, that was what I knew for church, right? This guy came from a different kind of church like Laid on a hand stuff. So he puts his palm on my forehead. I'm laying in the hospital bed. I can't get away from him. He's got his palm on my forehead, and he's praying, and he prayed Mark eleven twenty two, where Jesus said, speak to the mountain with the face of mustard seed. Now, that's a whole different kind of praying than I was used to. When I was used to praying in my church, if you're really, you know, if you're right with God, you're going to pray like this. You've got to bow your head. You've got to cr- cross your hands. You've know, got to hold your hands together, and you have to close your eyes. So this is the only right way to pray from the church I went to. And you're going to beg God a lot. You know, that kind of praying, like God please this, God please that, which is, you know what? God wants us to come to him and, and give him our request. He says, pray about all things. The Bible says that, right? So that's what I knew. But this Mark 11 type of prayer that Jesus told his disciples about, he's, it's a different kind of prayer where we, he said in Mark, let him speak to the mountain in my name. What's the mountain? The problem. So this guy shows up. He's got his palm my forehead and he says, small intestine, I command you to supernaturally go back right now in the name of Jesus. When he did, it felt like I touched an electric fence right here. Anybody ever touched a electric fence? It has stung like snap, right there. And the power of God came out of this man's hand, went through my body into my intestine. I could feel my intestines rolling. So all of a sudden, my weight that just keeps every day losing, 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 all of a sudden my weight levels out. And they're feeding me with TPN. You know, and they had to keep changing that formula to make it just right for my body. And all of a sudden, my weight's going up, and it's going up. And they're saying, "Wait a minute, your your body's retaining water. We got to adjust the formula." And they adjust the formula, and I keep gaining weight. And they're like, "Okay, we got to do some tests." And so they take me in. And the radiologist does this upper GI, and makes me drink the barium, and all of a sudden he's mumbling, "Mistake." And I'm like, "What? What do you mean? There's a mistake in my body?" What do the doctors do? Tell me. What's the mistake? He's like, "No, no, it's a mistake in the records." I said, "What do you mean?" He said, "Well, the records show that when they did the initial operation, you they had two pieces of test, and they saved, and it was all." a little over 100 centimeters, but then this certain chunk died and now you've got less than 100 centimeters. He said, but I'm looking at you here. He says, you've got at least one half of your intestines. He said, but this is the best guy, this is the best doctor. I know he doesn't make mistakes he couldn't have made. He's been in you four times. He's notated length four different times. He couldn't have made that mistake four times. How do you have this much intestine? So they make me drink the barium again. And they call him the senior radiologist. And then he does a test to get him. I'm like, come on, you guys. And they, they get out the hard records. Now they call for the actual physical records. So the lady comes with the cart and they're going through the binders. And, and they're like, man, I don't know how he, how did he make this mistake? He's a genius. Like, this guy doesn't make mistakes. Why did he say multiple times, you, you got, you know, half your intestines? God did a creative miracle when that man prayed. And I'm dying with this much. And all of a sudden, guess what? I'm here and I'm alive. God sent somebody to pray me back to life. God sent the angels to do whatever they did, and then he sent this guy to pray, and a creative miracle happened. What you see here, five times they went from here to here. So the last operation was yet to come. This creative miracle happens, there was one operation left. The gallbladder had to get taken out, removed, because it got plugged up and wrecked from the parental nutrition from being fed intravenously for so many months it wrecked my gallbladder i had scar tissue i had adhesions i had one rib that they could never get the girl back they kept trying to make that thing stick it was flopping around and clunking and making noise and finally we decided to take it out and throw it away so they threw the rib away they took out the gallbladder they took out the adhesions the scar tissue all this stuff it was like a cleanup it's the last job it's like this cleanup job right so the doctor goes in to does cleanup job mr atheist that doesn't believe in god cuts me open and sees nine to eleven feet of intestine that came out of nowhere that he knew he removed and I wasn't in the room uh, consciously, right? Because I'm out in anesthesia. But the other doctor and a nurse told me later that when he cut me open, he saw all this intestine that came out. Of He's really, really, really. They literally call him a genius. That he threw the scalpel across the room, turned away and began to scream and just had a meltdown. Melted down. Why? Because he's so smart, he knew that was impossible. But God. And if you don't have God, it makes no sense. And it scrambled his brain. And he had a meltdown. He collected himself. He had his back to my body. He said he collected himself, turned around like nothing happened, scalpel, and went back to work. And I make the, the, it's a sad dad joke that makes my kid roll their eyes every time. But I say that doctor apparently hates my guts. (laughs) I can't resist. I just got to do it every time. But here's the thing. It's just like in the Bible when Jesus would do the miracles. The Pharisees and Sadducees would get mad because what? Scrambled their brain. Didn't make sense. Does not compute. Does not compute, right? God did all these miracles. All this stuff. We started the ministry that January. Last operation was first week of December 07. We started January 1st, 2008. Since then... I've been traveling around the world, sharing my testimony, uh, you know, over 1,500 churches. I don't know, whatever it's been. It's, you know, we we were pre-COVID doing about 150 to 170 services just like this a a year. So it's like through basically three of these a week for the last however many years. And I'm going to spend the rest of my life telling people that there is a God who is alive and well. And he's up there. And you know what? We prayed for people, man. We have seen God do the same kind of miracles. Not every person, by far, not even close. But it doesn't matter. We've still seen him. I've seen God open blind eyes. I've seen God open deaf ears. I've seen people who are paralyzed get up and walk. It's got nothing to do with me. I don't ever want prayer. Like I told Pastor this morning, When it, if, if if we do prayer today, I don't want to be the guy praying. I'll we'll all pray in a big group. I'll just be part of the group. Because I know there's nothing special about me. But the Bible says. The same power that raised Christ from the dead lives and resides inside of us. That's why a two-month-old baby Christian, she was only believing in Jesus for two months. This lady, Shannon Seeley, who prayed me back to life, she was raised a Catholic. When she became 18, she's like, I'm leaving mom and dad's house and nobody's making me go to church again. How many times does not happen? Right? We see it in churches all the time. Once they get college age, it's like, forget that, mom and dad, you can't make me go to church anymore. And that's where the way she went. She got married. She had kids. She gets her master's degree. She's real educated, right? So she thinks she's smart. And her and her husband, man, we don't believe in God. That's for dumb people. That's for weak people that need a weak crutch. But now they're in their late 30s and they start having thumps and bumps in the house that's scaring them and their kids. And they know that they know that they know it can't be explained in any other way but spiritual. Ghost, you know, whatever you want to call it, they had something spiritual bothering them in their house. Turn on lights, shutting off lights, steps, hearing stuff, doors closing, nobody's there, and it's freaking them out. So she goes on a spiritual journey. What is this? What is it about? I don't believe in God. She does this. She she went to other countries. She did. She goes on this journey, and in the end, she pulls out her catechism Bible from when she was given the, the catechism at whatever age the Catholics were given that. What what age is that? Who knows? I don't know. Yeah, around 12. So she pulls out the Catechism Bible. It's got her name on it, you know, the old gold print big monster. And she's got it out the kitchen table. She starts reading, and the Holy Spirit starts working on it saying, See, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. Jesus is the one. You need him. And sitting at her kitchen table, she says, Okay, Jesus, is real, come on. I need you. And she had an experience, and she received Jesus by herself. Two months before the accident that I had, that she showed up at. So for two months, all she's doing is reading this Bible at home, staying a lot of time in the New Testament, she told me. So when she showed up, seeing the accident, she hadn't been to church, except for when she was a kid. And I say over and over and over, thank God that woman didn't go to church in those two months. I'm serious. What if she would have went to a church that said miracles don't happen anymore? That's, that ended. When the Bible ended, that ended. God didn't do miracles anymore. If she would have been to one of those churches, she would have saw that poor slobber in the truck and said, nothing we can do for him. But that silly girl, all she had was a New Testament. She said she had just got done reading John 14, 12. Jesus, it's in red. Jesus says this, those who believe in me will do the same things that I've been doing. She's like, oh, wait a minute. I just read he's praying people back to life. Come back. What's his name? Bruce. Come on back, Bruce. I just think this should probably work. It's like the faith of a child. And she prayed me back to life three times, three times. I won't me back to life. So if you've been a Christian longer than two months and you haven't prayed anybody back to life yet, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> no, this is it. I mean, we've got a God who is alive and well, and he loves us. I didn't spend any time on my background today. My back much time on it. My background. I was a naughty kid. I was a kid getting kicked out of school, kicked off the bus. I was a kid getting in fights all the time. I was repeatedly sexually abused as a child. I was physically abused, verbally abused. I grew up in a crazy, dysfunctional home of drugs and alcohol, not feeling loved. I was angry and had lots of issues and problems. I've hurt a lot of people. I've done a lot of bad things, illegal things. I sold drugs for years and years and years just so I could get mine for free. That's the life I lived. If God would send angels for this guy, if God would send a lady to bring me back to life, send a guy from across the country to pray for a creative miracle to happen, and he does it all, then the Bible's got to be true. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. It's a free gift. His mercies are new every day. If you're here and you think you can earn, you're good enough to earn God's forgiveness, man, you're delusional. Nobody is. The Bible says, for all have sinned and fall short of it. That was the problem with the Pharisees and Sadducees. They thought they could get to God through religion. We're going to check off all the boxes. Man, I'm going to go to the Sabbath. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to tithe. They tithe on what they grew in the garden. It made them religious. Look at me. Man, I'm good. Right? If you think you can get to God like that, you can't. None of us can. Nobody can. For me, it's real easy. I know I can't because of where I'm come from. Because of my last name. My last name, is troubled my tongue. From my grandpa to my dad to me and my brothers. People know my last name as a troubled family. So it's easy for me to know. Yeah, I know I don't deserve it. I feel sorry for the people who think they can. Because nobody kills. God loves us. This amazing love. Whether we deserve it, whether we're good or not, right? We can't earn it. It's a free gift. Jesus paid this price. Jesus paid the price on the cross for all sin, past, present, and future. All of it. Whether it's a little bit of sin or a lot of sin, He paid the price for all of it in our lives. This is where I'd like to end. If you could um, bear with me just a couple more minutes. Like I said, everybody, when you die, your spirit's going to leave your body, like I did. I've talked to people who got to the end of the tunnel, and God says you got to go back, or an angel tells me you got to go back. But I've also talked to people who've gone in a tunnel that went down into pure blackness, and by the grace of God, they were sent back as well for another chance. Those stories are cool, but those stories scare me. When those people tell me those stories, I know they're not lying. There's, there's like three of them that are in mind that are seared into my memory forever that those people told me face-to-face that I'll never forget. They were terrifying. Detail after detail of what happened when they went down that black hole and where, 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 what ended up was there waiting for them. Nobody has to tell them that Jesus is real, that they need Jesus when they came back, right? If my testimony makes people think about the reality of, man, we're all going to die at some point, where am I going? The Bible says the only way we get to heaven is through the blood of Jesus for his forgiveness. We've made, we've received, we've received what he's done for us. We accept that, receiving into heart as Lord and Savior so we can go there. See, the problem with heaven is when your spirit leaves your body, either it's carrying its sin or it's not. You could be the best little old lady, a nice little grandma, wouldn't hurt a flea, help the cats out of the tree, whatever, but you've sinned at some point in your life. And if you... Don't have Jesus to take away that sin, to pay the price of your sin. You left your body, your spirit leaves your body, it's carrying its sin. There's only one place to go down because heaven is a perfect place. There's no sin allowed in heaven. There's no sin allowed in heaven. So you can't go there carrying just a little bit of sin. It's as bad as a lot of sin. So, Jesus pays the price so that, boom, we're wrapped in his robe of righteousness. He washes away our sin and we get to go. So, this is what I'd like to do. If I could end with this, could I have every head bowed and every eye closed, please? With every head bowed and every eye closed, Uh, I have explained to you what happened to me. I've tried my best to uh, explain what that looks like biblically, our spirit, our soul. And the Bible says in Romans, the wage of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. If you're here today and you're not right with God, 1 John... The Apostle John says this, we should have confidence of our salvation. If you don't have confidence that when you die, that your spirit is going to leave and go to heaven. If you don't have that confidence, there's something amiss. There's something wrong. You should have it. See, the problem is a lot of times we, we don't have that confidence because we think, oh, but I'm, uh, you know, I'm bad. I'm, I'm not good enough. You know, I hope I'm good enough to go to heaven. I'm better than my jerk brother-in-law. I haven't, I haven't killed anybody. I haven't committed adultery. My wife, well, at least not physically. I mean, all these things we can play games in our mind and think through, right, and say, I hope I'm good enough. If your thinking is like that, that's religious type thinking, and that's back to yourself. Am I good enough? Did I do a good enough job? Have I gone to church enough? Have I given enough money? All those types of things. If, it, if it's on us, we can't have confidence. We can't have assuredness. But if it's on the finished work of the cross, then it's easy because it's what Jesus did, not what I did. If you don't have that assurance, if you don't have confidence, the Bible says today is a day of salvation. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus, is the Lord, and believe in your heart that Christ, God raised him from the dead, paid the price for our sins. You get that gift. You get that. You get to have it. Jesus offers it to us. It's a personal choice. I can't do it for my wife. Can't do it for your husband. Can't do it for kids. Each one of us have to make that choice for ourselves. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I'm going to count to three. If there's anybody here that has not made that choice, that decision, and would like to, we're just going to take care of it right now. and We'll all say a prayer together. I'll just have you, I'll count to three. You can have anybody who would like to raise your hand up for 10 seconds, five seconds. Not to me, but to Jesus. You're just making a statement. That's why it's every head bowed and every eye closed. When we're judged before God, it's going to be us and God, right? Nobody's there to, to Jesus. God the Father and Jesus, but there's nobody else there. There's nobody there. Your wife's not going to be there. Your husband's not going to be there. Oh, he's in because of me. No, it's us. We have to make that choice. We have to make that decision. I'll have you, whoever wants to, you can raise your hand at the count of three, just, for just, a, just a little bit, just to make a, you're making a statement to God saying, yeah, I want this. Put your hand down, and then we'll all say a prayer together. So if you're feeling a tug on your heart, the Bible says that God draws men and women unto himself. And that's the Holy Spirit tugging on you. So if you're not right with God, you know it. Nobody has to tell you. But you know what? God's not going to twist your arm. He's not going to force you to marry him. Because it wouldn't be good for you and it wouldn't be good for him. If you want that relationship on the count of three, you can just raise your hand and we'll just make a statement of faith and then hang on because life will never be the same after that. So if it's something you want, you desire. You have to want it. You have to desire it. Just raise him up on three. One, two, three. Let's do this. let's say this prayer together. And if you're, if you're, if you're already Christian, awesome, this is just a confirmation of faith. Let's just say this. Lord Jesus, I'm a sinner. I've sinned against you and other people. This day, I repent of my sins. I ask for and receive your forgiveness. I choose you to be my Lord and Savior. I pray that from this day forward, I would have intimacy with you, relationship with you. Holy Spirit, I invite you in, in full measure. Melt me, mold me, shape me, turn me to the person of God you want me to be. And all God's children said, Amen. Can we give Jesus a clap, please? Thank you. Thank you.